Welcome to episode 55 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What is going on? Everything is going on. It's a great world to be in, Tony. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm sipping on some water because it's like a million degrees up here. But other than that, it's fantastic. Yeah, people need to know that you basically record in a closet without any windows on a second floor. That is basically a sauna. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I just need like a steam, like a like a rock with steam coming off of it and like an old fat man Turkish in a dude? towel. Yeah, an old Turkish dude <laughs> that's sitting way too close to me. And then it'd be like exactly an, a sauna. Uh, speaking of which, are any of those things things that you are affirming or denying this week? Well, I would be denying old Turkish dude sitting too close to me in a sauna, but that's that's just right a on. given. So uh, let's start with affirmations. Um, I'm affirming Bible study, and I don't mean like individual Bible study. I mean like small group Bible study because we had small group episode last week. And then we started our church's um, men's and ladies Bible study. And it was just a great time to, we're studying the book of Joshua. So it's great to like look at God's faithfulness and to celebrate that with other men in the church um, and just to spend time with each other is really refreshing. Yeah. There's something great about being together with other dudes looking into the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Just something really good. Like I always leave those kind of exchanges feeling like pumped up. Like I want to run through a wall. Yeah. You say that that a lot. You say that a lot that you want to run through a wall. Is this like a lifelong dream you've had of running through a wall? It's it's the only... Well, here's the thing. I do have a dream of doing like Kool-Aid man style, like after Bible study. Yes. Like that scripture was so good. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, that would be pretty awesome. Yeah. You might be able to do it at our church, actually, because the wall is like a superficial wall. It's like a, it was added after the construction of the building. So it's just plywood. You might be able to actually get through it. I actually thought you were going to say you could do it at your church because the Bible study is so good. No, I'm just talking about the structure of the church. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you want to go that route, I guess. I mean, it was, it's, it's a great study. I'm just really excited to to go through Joshua. I mean, Joshua is one of those books that you kind of like, everybody just sort of plugs through it on your, you know, your yearly Bible study. You read like the first seven chapters until you get to like Jericho and then it's like, 20 chapters of dividing up the land and conquering this person and that person in like no descriptions whatsoever. Um, and then it's choose therefore, which who you will serve. And then it's like done. And then Joshua yeah. dies, but it's, it's, there's a lot of meat there and I'm excited to, to get into it. That's actually a really good point. It's nice to be in corporate Bible study where for lack of a better term, you're kind of forced to wade through some of the stuff that you fly yeah. by. If you're just in the room by yourself, there, there's some yep. good truth in that. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you affirming tonight? So this week, I'm affirming the opportunity to be humble and admit when you haven't been clear in something that you've said. (laughs) Whatever do you mean, Jesse? Yeah. So a good case in point is uh, I will be happy to admit on any day of the week and twice on the Lord's Day that uh, oftentimes I'm just not as crisp and clear as I would like to be in explaining something. And last week, you and I were having, of course, a great and riveting conversation, and the conversation turned to justification, 
And I was so excited to express how I understood justification over and against the new perspective on Paul that I definitely gave kind of like a weird impression that I at least wanted to clarify. <laughs> so, so let me say this, like how I understand justification is it does, it, it does not describe the way that God inward, inwardly renews a person, but it is a legal declaration. And I was trying to emphasize not that there's, there is imputation there, but it doesn't make you a righteous person. It really declares that you're one uh, to God. So I realized I said things like injected. I didn't use the <laughs> word infusion because I was trying to avoid this idea that what I'm definitely not saying is that somehow we're infused with righteousness and that begets some kind of good moral personal behavior, then that leads into kind of good action. What I was trying to emphasize is that when God declares us righteous through justification, that's a real forensic justification. It's not It's not subjective. It is objective. So it's not as if God is trying to force something to be true that really isn't, and he's just trying to hopefully make it seem like everything's okay. It is really true, but it is not God regenerating somebody. We're not righteous through justification. We're just merely declared that way. So I want to clarify that (laughs) because it wasn't clear. And I appreciate everybody who was like, what the heck is he talking about? Because that sounds like not really that reformed. So I I definitely was not clear. And so I affirmed this week the opportunity, as we all should, to be a little bit humble sometimes and say, yeah, I just did not articulate that well. Yeah. So just a little glimpse inside the brotherhood. So we release our episode releases on Wednesday. And usually sometime Wednesday afternoon, Jesse and I have a chat about how the episode went. How did it sound? Was there any issues? And I get this like panic text message at about 3.30 <laughs> in the afternoon. And it's like, why the egg didn't you tell me that I sounded exactly like a Roman Catholic? <laughs> and it was literally like 30 seconds after someone had messaged me on Facebook and said, did he really mean to sound like righteousness is infused into us like an injection? And I was like, hold on a second. No said what jesse was trying to say i think is that uh there is something real that is added to us exactly we are we are declared just on the basis of that objective thing that's added to us right like that's where i was going take the weird injection word out of that and just just read that so i I, i'm right there with you I've, i've done it before too yeah i i think like what i wrote was I inadvertently sounded super in all capital letters mm-hmm. Catholic for some reason on this episode. And yeah, I, that was a total inadvertent uh, mistake. Yeah, because I want I was trying to again against like the new perspective on Paul emphasize the imputation that that is right. real, but it's not making us righteous. So exactly because yeah, we don't have to rehash all of last week. Everybody should go back and listen to that and see how I sound Catholic. <laughs> but um, I just I just actually I kind of appreciate the opportunity. Many people asked me about that. And also many people were super gracious to me and saying like, we get that that's not exactly what you yeah. meant. So I appreciate that people, but it's words matter and they mean they something. Do. So again, but I also talked about Ferraris in that episode, which I've also never done before. So it it's was true. all in all, it was pretty record breaking for me. Yeah. And I will just piggyback on your affirmation and say, I want to affirm all of our sharp listeners who immediately just heard that something was off. Um, but by and large, assumed the benefit of the doubt. So good that. on you for being sharp and understanding the theology that we are trying to teach. And also good on you for giving us the benefit of the doubt that we're not uh, heretics or Roman Catholic uh, traitors of some Love sort. Love that graciousness. Yes. I'm, I'm glad we're done with that. So let's move on to some denials. Yes. Let's start, with, let's start with you. What are you denying this week? So this week, I'm increasingly coming to this place where I am... Ready, I think, to deny social media on the Lord's Day. 
And I kind of just moved in that direction almost inadvertently once again, but I'm just seeing like there's this wonderful dovetailing of being in the Lord's house, being with the Lord's people, being with the people that God has placed you in the community with that are actually in your physical sphere yeah. and finding that I just don't need to be involved on social media on the Lord's day. So I'm, I'm kind of really enjoying that. And it's for me, it's kind of going organically. I haven't missed it so much. And now I'm thinking maybe I should just make a specific effort to say, I'm just going to take a break from it. There's nothing wrong with using it on the Lord's day, but in an effort to kind of wrap my brain and my myself in a centered way around the actual, actual community that I'm literally next to, I'm just going to leave it alone. So that's one of the things I think I'm denying. That is awesome. That's that's yeah. great. That's kind of happened organically for me too. I mean, most of my social media activity revolves around um, being an admin in the Reform Pub. And so on Saturdays, I actually just kind of like, just because of the way my life is structured, a little while ago, I made the decision to take Facebook, the actual Facebook app off my tablet and my phone. So I can still access Facebook if I want to, but I have to go to a browser and I have to log in each time, blah, blah, blah. So on Saturdays, when I'm not sitting at a computer for a large portion of the day, I'm just not on social media as much. And the same thing happened on Sunday. And on Sunday, on top of that, the the Reform Pub is actually completely shut down. So even the occasional fire or theological question that I get called in on a Saturday um, I say it like I'm a job, like I'm getting called, like I'm on call. Um, but the occasional thing doesn't happen on Sunday. So like Sunday is sort of become a clean zone for me. So I, I totally agree with your denial. I affirm your denial. I like that. Yeah. We're, we're getting heavy on this one. So how about yes. you? What are you denying? So I am denying, <clears throat> excuse me. I am denying ridiculous crazy date setters for the rapture and or the mayan end of the world calendar slash apocalypse thing right so did you hear about this crazy christian numerologist guy i did there's always one right there's there's always always one one in a cycle yeah and for every single person that has set a date 100 percent of them have been wrong so That's that should true. give you some idea the next time someone sets a date that it's probably not going to be this guy that gets it right out of all of the history <laughs> of, of Christianity. Um, and there have been date setters since literally the beginning of the church. So this crazy guy, I didn't read at all any of it, except that there was a crazy guy who set a date of yesterday. Uh, it is September 24th at 726 PM and we are still here. So, um, I don't know who you are, but you were wrong. Oh, and that's what I'm denying. <laughs> that's a good denial. <laughs> that's like an, an epic. That That's a, a denial that has a hundred percent probability of being correct. If yes. that makes sense. Let's just put it this way. If Jesus doesn't know something, then you probably don't either. Let's just say that. Slap it on a bumper sticker. Yep. If, if the son of God doesn't know the day or the hour, I'm going to guess you're not going to figure it out with like a little bit of numerology. With, with some arithmetic? With some arithmetic, <laughs> yeah. Get your slide rule out or your TI-83. Slide rule? And what figure out the end of the Slide rule? I don't know. I just, I don't know. I'm trying to be as ridiculous as I can. I, I would just say that if somebody, if I asked somebody, well, what was your process? And they're like, well, first I got a slide rule. I'd be like, we're done. <laughs> I pulled That's out my it. abacus. And yeah, I started flipping yeah, the little exactly. beads across. I don't even know You're how right. an abacus when works. When you think about it in those terms, it's a good denial because it affirms just logically how ridiculous the whole thing sounds. Yeah. 
It's yeah, just crazy. It as if like, well, Jesus just wasn't good at math. So, and I've got an algorithm and right. calculus. And so I'm going to be able to figure this out. Yeah. I mean, even, even if you give someone the absolute benefit of the doubt and you say, you know what, they're doing good exegesis and they think they've come to a conclusion, you still end up having to say like, well, this dude thinks he knows the scriptures better than Christ did. Right. Who inspired the scriptures. And it just right. doesn't, it just doesn't work. So. Yeah. Uh, that that's great, and th- this is a good. That's a really good lead into kind of where we're going tonight, right? It is. We're going to set some dates tonight. <laughs> oh, is that what we're doing? I was <laughs> no, totally unprepared. Let it's me. Not. Uh, I don't even know if I have a slide rule, but <laughs> yeah, we definitely should do that. Yeah, um, let's not do that. But we are talking about eschatology, right? Yes, we are. Yes. Yeah. So you may be looking at your calendar and thinking we set the date wrong because this is not normally our week to do systematic theology. But we have a very special interview next week uh, that we wanted to get out timed to a certain movie release, if that gives you a hint of who the interview may be with. Um, And so we're going to shift our eschatology episode one week early. It just happens that that lined up with the crazy dude who thought the world was ending yesterday. But that wasn't really the, the purpose. So eschatology, this is the last of our systematic theology episodes. It is. It's kind of drawing to a close. And what better way to end it than to basically have a discussion about the end times on the exact day that somebody said they would occur, but didn't. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, excuse me. So eschatology just comes from the Greek word eschatos, which just means the last or the final things. And there are two kind of components to this discipline of eschatology or the subject of eschatology. There's what is called personal eschatology, which is concerned with um, primarily the intermediate state. So what happens to a person after they die, but before the resurrection? And so you talk about, uh, and we'll talk about it a little bit, you know, what is hell? What is heaven? What's the state of a person's body? What's the state of their spirit? You know, are they conscious? Are they not conscious? All those things is what's called personal eschatology. So the, the last things of an individual. And then there's, Um, what you might call corporate or cosmic eschatology, which is concerned with sort of the end of all things, the, the, not necessarily the utter end, but the end of this age, right? There's this age and then there's the age to come. And so the, the cosmic eschatology is the theology of these last days, right? Hebrews, um, Hebrews one says in these last days, Christ, uh, the father spoke to us by his son. And so it's concerned with what you might call the church age and the end of the church age, um, and then progressing into kind of the final state of the universe. So um, we're going to spend most of our time tonight probably talking about cosmic eschatology, um, simply because um, there's not nearly as much disagreement within sort of conservative Orthodox Christianity, little o Orthodox Christianity, um, on personal eschatology, right? Um, if you ask a confessional Lutheran and a confessional reform person, what happens after a person dies, they're basically going to say, um, their soul is separated from their body. And if they are righteous, if they're, if they're a Christian who's been paid for by Christ's sacrifice, they go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord without a body. And if they are the unjust and they have not been justified, then they go into some sort of torment and con- you know conscious um, punishment apart from God's grace. So, and then they'll talk about the resurrection and all those things are basically going to be the same. So um, there's 
maybe little variations, little nuances here and there, but by and large, that's, I mean, that's just kind of the traditional historic Christian position. Right on. Corporate eschatology or cosmic eschatology um, has a lot more variation, even within the reformed camp, even within reformed theology, there's, you know, three major, pretty different positions um, to explore. And so those positions would be the historic premill, um, premillennium, meaning that Christ um, Christ returns before the millennium, and then there's the millennium, and then there's the um, God's eternal kingdom. There's the amillennial position, which doesn't necessarily actually deny that there's a millennium, but wants wants to say that in some sense the millennium is now. That it's not, strictly speaking, a thousand years. It's a a symbolic number that represents kind of how Christ is reigning and ruling now. And then there's the post-millennial position, which basically says that Christ comes back after the millennium. And the millennium is kind of this era of prosperity and peace where the gospel goes forward and uh, has sort of an unparalleled level of success. So Christ in the post-millennial position comes back to kind of a Christianized world where the amillennial position says he reigns sort of spiritually and the premillennial position basically says Christ comes back and Christianizes the world. Does that all make sense? Yep. And you might as well mention the one that's excluded from that list because we wouldn't consider it to be comport with the reform perspective. Yes. And it is also probably the dominant eschatology in the evangelical church is the dispensational premillennial. Right. And the difference, you know, the primary difference there, we talked a little bit about this on the dispensationalism episode, but the primary difference is that in the, the premillennial dispensationalist view, there's a secret coming of Christ um, seven years before the millennial happens and that he raptures the church and then sort of the program for Israel takes, you know, picks back up for the last seven years of the Great Tribulation. And then Christ comes back um, and there's all sorts of... Um, trying to say as respectfully as possible, there's all sort of kind of weird things that have to happen in the millennium that other positions look at and go, that just doesn't make any sense. Like unregenerate um, people living for a thousand years alongside regenerate glorified Christians, um, which just doesn't make any sense to me. So we're not going to spend hardly any time on the dispensational view, but it is out there. Um, you, If you want to learn about it, you know, there's all sorts of books. Um, there's some theological books that are not fictional that are written by um uh tim LaHaye and uh jerry jerry jenkins jerry jenkins is that right <laughs> i don't know LaHaye i just like and, that i didn't know where you were going i just like that you started saying there's some non-fictional books about dispensational <laughs> as if they were all fiction there's there okay so what i'm trying to say there are theological books that are basically the theological foundation for the left behind series that don't have the act all of the fictionalized narrative laid on top of it. Right. So that are going to explain the the exegetical basis for some of the theology that kind of gets filled in in the Left Behind series. And it, it was written by LaHaye, I think. LaHaye is the um, yes. primary author of those. So they're out there. Um, I wouldn't recommend them because I think they're bad theology. But if you really want to learn about that position, that's kind of the most um, easy to appropriate form of dispensationalism and sort of in in, um, in terms of understanding what they're writing some of the other dispensationalist books that are out there are wicked hard because you have to understand all of the different numerological and charts and all the different stuff that they're doing um, it just gets to be kind of unwieldy so 
What I also find is that um, eschatology is one of those subjects that most even Reformed Christians have not really thought deeply about, and they just sort of fit into kind of a default box of some sort. Is that you think that's fair, Jesse? I'll ask you that just as you take a drink of your soda. No, I I think that's absolutely fair. I was going to ask if like even before we start this, do we got to slap some labels on us? Do we need to do that up front? Or because we, we can haven't if actually you talked want. about this. We haven't. So I'm an amillennialist. Um, and we'll explain in more detail what that is. What would you call yourself, Jesse? Oh, man, I would be historic pre-mill. Historic pre-mill. That doesn't surprise me because I, I think I think dad's a historic pre-mill. Is he? Yeah, that that wouldn't surprise me either. Yeah. but yeah. I, So I agree with this. And actually, I'll be honest in saying that this is one of those topics where there can be a lot of nuances. And though I have my own personal convictions on it, obviously, because I've set myself into a small box there with the one that I've chosen to be, which I think is the most representative. But... Um, my learning in this is I've always just gone to people that are much stronger than I on this, which I guess is how you do most good learning. Right. But this is one of those things where I think there's a lot of misinterpretation of the scriptures, which leads to misunderstanding, which leads to subsequent misinterpretation. So for anybody, I would say it's always good to speak with your pastor, understand what your your perspective of your denomination or your local church is on these matters. But to go to somebody who understands this, because the eschatological calendar, like understanding this is so detailed and nuanced, even in the reform perspective. So right. I, I don't have like a firm grasp on being able, if somebody would just ask me on the street, like give me the full layout and timeline of everything, man, that's a lot. So I'm, I'm relying on you, Tony. You're going to lead us because this is one of those tough things. And it's good to have a teacher that has a really firm grasp on this stuff. Well, we're going to have to find someone else because this is not my area of strength either, but I'm going to do my best. So um, Take it there's, other, there's other elements that we need to touch base on too. And so some of these elements kind of map up to the other positions too, but not always. So um, the other flip side of this is kind of how do you – so eschatological, eschatological position is broader than just the book of Revelation. But there are some some sort of discussions that – feature primarily the book of Revelation. And so there's kind of the futurist position, which would say that the majority of the events taking place that we see in the book of Revelation are events that are yet to happen um, in reference to our current time. Um, and that tends to map up to the historical premillennial position. So what, what what that means is that a historical premillennialist, uh, I'm going to stop saying historic, we're just say premillennialist um, and exclude the dispensationalist. So that's out there. Um, the premillennialists typically will look at the book of Revelation and things like the Olivet Discourse in um, the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, and will say those events have yet to happen. Not from the author, not just from the perspective of the author in the first century, but from the perspective of us sitting here in 2017. I, it's weird. I had to look at the clock to figure out what year it was. Um, in From our perspective in 2017. Then there's what you might call the partial preterist position, which would say a good portion, if not the majority of the events that we see in the book of Revelation or described in the Olivet Discourse or passages in Thessalonians that are applicable, um, a good portion of those happened after the death and resurrection of Christ, but predominantly before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And there's good reasons for that. Um, obviously, there are people who disagree or we wouldn't have different positions. Um, obviously mark of the beast, right? So, so a lot of those things, the mark of the beast, um, these cosmic signs in the heavens, these armies invading all that stuff. A lot of that is understood to be fulfilled 
in the persecution under Nero and the um, destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Where it kind of can fly off the rails there is when you start to say things like the resurrection of Christ fits, the, the resurrection of all people and the return of Christ fits into that category. Um, and that would be a full preterist position, which the Reformed would say, no, that's that's not an acceptable position. Yeah, get that um, out of here. Even Paul in the first century is dealing with full preterists and the New Testament's not even done. He's interacting with people that are saying, well, Christ has already returned. The general resurrection of the dead has already happened. And in order to do that, you basically have to spiritualize the whole thing. It's not a bodily resurrection of the dead. It's not a bodily return of Christ. It's a spiritual return and resurrection. So you see that mostly in kind of the ultra-liberal camps that want to deny the bodily resurrection of Christ and the bodily resurrection of the dead. And that that um, the partial preterist position um, tends to line up with the amillennial and the postmillennial position. Then sort of the final sort of perspective on the book of Revelation that you have to think about, at least in this discussion, is what's called the idealist uh, interpretation. And the idealist interpretation wants to look at the book of Revelation and say these symbols and figures that we're seeing in the book of Revelation and the language that it's echoing from the prophets and the language that it's echoing from um, the Olivet Discourse and from other teaching in the New Testament it's not necessarily a futurist thing. It's not like there's a single concrete fulfillment in the future, but it's also not a partial preterist. And what they want to say is that these are events that operate on kind of a cyclical basis. So the the events that we see in Revelation are idealists. They're ideals. And so they repeat themselves throughout history. So um, rather than the beast being in a single ruler that's going to come in the future, which is kind of the futurist understanding, or being Nero or some historical um, oppressive uh, governor or ruler, they're going to say that the beast represents kind of the the cycle of oppressive rulers throughout history. And this also tends to be prominent in uh, millennial positions and to a lesser degree, in my experience, the post-millennial position. Um, I find myself in sort of a middle ground between the, the partial preterist and the idealist position, I would guess, Jesse, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think you're probably primarily seeing Revelation in future terms of future fulfillment, right? Mostly. Yep. Right. So th- those are the broad contours. Um, did I miss anything or misrepresent no, anything I, that you want to correct? No, I think that was good. <laughs> okay. So, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly what what more we can say except to sort of dive into the details a little bit. Right. Does that sound good? Yeah, let's let's do it. Well, I'll leave it to you. What do you think is like an important detail that we need to be concerned about that maybe people aren't often concerned about or knowledgeable about? Yeah, so I think um, there's a lot of times that Christians think eschatology is out there somewhere, right? I don't need to think about it because either Jesus is coming back tomorrow and it doesn't matter because I don't have time to think about it. Or Jesus is coming back in 300 years and it doesn't matter because it's not going to be during my lifetime. Those are kind of like the extreme ends. But most people behave one way or another. Um, The problem is that your eschatology and your understanding of eschatology in large part drives not only your soteriology, but just in general how you think about Christian ethics and how we interact with the world. So if you are – if you're a premillennial, you – have a tendency to to sort of have an urgency about the gospel, which is good, but you also sometimes have a tendency to downplay sort of the 
um, the need for taking dominion over the earth, right? It's kind of that God's going to blow it up and recreate it. So why should we care whether or not we keep the environment safe? So there's that stewardship of creation that's really prominent in certain streams of Christianity. The historic pre-mill position tends to sort of ignore that. That's a, a pitfall that I think they can fall into. The amillennial position and the postmillennial position on the flip side, since we emphasize sort of the current rule and reign of Christ, um, the, that Christ is sitting on his throne now, and that we don't have to wait for some future fulfillment to say that God, is, you know, Christ is the king of the universe right now, we sometimes have a lack of emphasis on evangelism because it's kind of the same thing that sometimes Calvinists in general can fall into that, well, God is sovereign. So, you know, I, I have to play my part, but I, I don't really need to worry about it because God's going to do what he's going to do. So sometimes I think the camps fall into that. But whoever you are, eschatology is an important thing for us to think about because it drives some of those other kinds of um, positions, those other kinds of thought processes. Yeah, right on. I agree with that. I mean, it, they're not. it's not to say that all those things are mutually exclusive. I mean, there are people, clearly I believe that God is, see, this is where it gets tricky is clearly I understand and believe that God's reign is in somewhat it's present but not fully realized right but we have to talk about what does that mean in terms of revelation and how realized is it and is it the official reign or are you just meaning that kind of in a in a spiritual sense and that's where we have to flesh it all out what's interesting is I was thinking as you were talking is um because like you said I agree that this is a complicated matter and I do think there's not the same, we don't sense the same type of urgency in needing to understand this to live out our lives. Have you heard that phrase, like some people are so heavenly minded that they're not any earthly good? Yeah. Have you heard, th- heard that phrase before? I've actually I never have. met that person. Like I've never <laughs> met somebody that I, that actually I thought was, wow, so caught up with heavenly matters that they were just like a complete fool and, and useless yeah. on earth. So in some respects, like I, I understand what you're saying. It's just funny. I, I rarely though met a person that is so, although people do get, really focused on eschatology in the end times. But I've really met somebody who does so effectively define their life and then live it backwards. You know, that actually says, and we should do this to some extent, but says like, well, I'm so subscribed to this particular view of eschatology that I let that shape everything. But but I get the point that it does make its way in. But I think most of the time people are not just that well versed in it to have it make its way in. Is that a fair critique? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and because eschatology is ends up being a box that I think a lot of us kind of fall into by default, either yep. you know because we haven't thought about it deeply and so we just kind of adopt the view that we were raised in or of our church or whatever, we also don't think through sort of the practical outflows of those, the consequences. So I think that's a totally fair critique that we have to really understand this stuff because of the way it influences us. But at the same time, we can't get so obsessed with like what's coming down the pike that we fail to live in the now. Right. I mean, this for me has always been more about understanding what in the Bible, what the Bible expresses about the end times, what that says about the character and person of God himself. Right. And we right. find a lot of common ground there, I think, across different kind of disciplines. But then we differ on you know, how the actual logistical pieces play out. And no doubt I'm going to be wrong about a lot of things. And that, in fact, may be one of them. I mean, the only place where we kind of move forward on this and we realize we, we start with soteriology and then move into eschatology and then we get to the wait a second is I would say for reform people is primarily dispensationalism because right. like we talked about the covenant. That's the only place where I think for most people, 
they define their sociology in a traditional reformed way. And then they just find the place, like you said, traditionally where they fit in terms of the eschological persuasion. And most of the time those two meet together really well. It only doesn't meet together. Well, if like, if you've been for, I don't know how this would happen, but if you were like, I'm definitely dispensational my eschatology and then, but you're reforming your sociology and then you start to study and realize, well, these two cannot meet together in any real way. Um, yeah, well, but, you know how that happens. It's happens it when happen? you listen to John MacArthur. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. But you'd have to I mean, subscribe whole... to like dispensationalism before you get to the end times, right? For that to right. to comport. Yeah, I I don't know how you would um, view view the the breadth of scripture and the the history of salvation in a covenantal framework, and then arrive at a dispensational eschatology kind of floating off by itself. Right. Um, and, and that's exactly it is dispensationalism. You know, most people bef- I think before I came to reform theology, I thought of dispensationalism exclusively as an end times view. And I think a lot of people make that same association that dispensationalists, those are those people that believe in the rapture. But before before the rapture, they believe basically the same thing as every other Christian. And that's only true to the extent that dispensationalism is kind of the majority view in evangelicalism. Right. But, you know, if you if you really believe the covenant theology that we've talked about in the past, the dispensational eschatology just can't it just can't work because that all depends on there being this sort of separate, distinct program for Israel. The, the rapture makes no sense at all. Full stop. But the rapture makes no no sense at all, especially <laughs> if you are not thinking about Israel as a sort of separate, distinct program of God's salvation. Right. Yeah, exactly. Even you if know. you hold like someone like John MacArthur does that the Jews who are saved are saved by faith in Christ. They're still saved as Jews, not as Christians. So there's these two distinct peoples of God. And so that facilitates the rapture and, and sort of all the, all what I would say is kind of the squirrely things that happen with like a literal David sitting on a literal throne and the, the temple is rebuilt and sacrifices. Re- all of that stuff only works if you're trying to sort of recreate the Judaism of the Old Testament and sort of import it into the book of Revelation, I think. My perception is that the dispensational premillennialism view is like the most dominant. You think that's fair? Like just in evangelicalism oh, yeah. kind of writ large? Yeah, absolutely. By I mean, and large, well, yeah. It's it's the default position of American evangelical right, Christians. Right. And I, I think that's largely because its biggest, most popular piece is the rapture. Right. I mean, that's the piece that people know or the one they associate. So they're like, well, where's the, where's the rapture? And that's the one that jumps out. That view has it right. embedded within it. I think what we need to do is we should try to come up with like bumper stickers for the other eschatological views. Because isn't this, this the one that's got like, have you seen the bumper sticker? Like in case of rapture, this car is unmanned yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I don't know what they would be for the amillennial position. It would be like, <laughs> um, I'm at work, but it's. I'm I'm there and not there yet, or something like <laughs> yeah, that. See, that's what we, that's what we should do. I I don't even know what the historic pre-mill would be because that's, um, I don't know. Can you think of one? I can't no. think of like something like that's like pithy that would fit in a bumper sticker. No. Well, let's crowdsource this out to our to our peeps. So what I want is for people to email us with their uh, bumper stickers for eschatological positions that are not dispensationalism. So, yeah, I love this. Or like tweet them with like a hashtag like 
eschatology bumper, bumper sticker, sticker or something. eschatology yeah yeah exactly. bumper sticker eschatology tweet that stuff out because i think this is hilarious because those are the ones like there's a whole i should just look them up right now but isn't there like a whole series of different random bumper stickers and again all of them are focused on the rapture and right. it's essentially trying to say i'm a christian so i'm not going to be here and you'll know that i won't be here because i just got taken away exactly because boom end times yeah, and so maybe maybe it would make a little bit of sense um, to sort of talk through the general program of events that each position thinks is going to happen in the oh, end. Oh man, here we go. So, You're getting in deep. Yeah, so I'm I'm not as familiar with the historic pre-mill position as I should be, um, but by and large, my understanding is that they follow a similar kind of um, order of events that the dispensational position does, but they instead of sort of breaking out the Jews as a separate part of God's people or a separate people. Um, they still retain the single sort of spiritual Israel model that covenant theology holds. And so they would generally would hold that Christ returns, that there would be a sort of a, a tribulation period. Yep. I've run into a lot of historic premills that still want to retain that seven year mark. And I don't know, mm, I don't know, I don't know whether it's necessarily um, because of exegesis or if it's, because a lot of historic pre-mills have just sort of like dropped the rapture and become historic pre-mills instead of dispensationalist pre-mills. Right. But generally speaking, there's still a period of increasing oppression and darkness. The world kind of continues to spiral downward and gets worse and worse until it kind of reaches a point that Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. And so the events in Revelation are, are going to be typically associated with um, non-supernatural events. So even though they're wanting to interpret literally, they're seeing that book of Revelation says in the beginning that it's a book of symbols and signs. And so they're seeing the the thing, the images in the book of Revelation, um, you know, they're not, they're not doing the dispensational thing where like the locust demons are Apache helicopters. Right. But they're exactly. saying like all of these, these cosmic events, the things that are going on, are intended to communicate this increasing, um, increasing oppression and darkness and evil in the world. Not necessarily in the specific forms that the symbols appear to be. Right, we're not talking necessarily about meteors coming, stars falling from the sky and wiping out a third of the earth. But what that is intended to convey is some sort of like catastrophic event that causes lots of death and destruction. Um, and so those kinds of things happen during that seven-year period, or in a, a figurative seven-year period, a, a tribulation period, then Christ returns, puts an end to all of that, raises his um, raises all to life, and then there's the thousand-year reign. And then this is where I, I get a little confused, and I think sometimes it's a little inconsistent, is a lot of historic premills still affirm another resurrection at the end of the thousand years. And my understanding is because they look at the book of Isaiah where it's talking about how like a person who dies at a hundred will be considered a young man will be right. like a baby dying. Right. And so they say, well, there's still people dying in the millennial kingdom. And so there has to be a second resurrection of some sort. I think that's one of the weak points of both the dispensational view and the historic pre-mill view, but not all historic pre-mills affirm that. And then once they hit that, um, that thousand years, then Satan um, is somehow restored or released again to wreck havoc and there's this final culmination of the forces of evil battling god and his army and the forces of evil are utterly destroyed and so that final destruction of evil 
ushers in the eternal kingdom of God where there's no more evil, there's no more death, there's no more pain. And that's what we see kind of in Revelation uh, 21, 22. Does that seem fair? You're the historic yeah, pre-mill. So. Like you said, there's a little okay. bit of nuance I've heard back and right. forth on some of those points, which again speaks to just the complicated nature of this whole thing. Yeah. So the amill position and the post-mill position tend to share a lot in common. Some people would say that the amillennial position is a is a subcategory of the post-millennial position. I, I think they're distinct enough to treat them differently. But the, the amillennial wants to say that um, essentially everything that's being described in the book of Revelation, short of the actual second coming, the final return of Christ, the resurrection of everything, happens in the period of the apostles between um, the death of Christ and the destruction of the temple. And so they're looking at it and these sort of this cosmic language is is used in the Old Testament. Um, this language of the sky being darkened and the stars falling in the heaven. We see similar language in some of the prophets regarding the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of, of the Babylonians. And so the amillennialist wants to look at this and say, this is describing sort of catastrophic destruction and particularly destruction in the temple because the temple was constructed in such a way where there's, you know, there's kind of the, the canopy or the, the roof of the temple and the curtains of the temple are sort of portraying the universe. And so this cosmic language of the stars falling and stuff is usually thought to be a reference to the destruction of the temple. So that's one of the primary critiques we hear is like, well, of course, this stuff can't have happened yet because the you know, the, the catastrophic language, we've never seen that kind of destruction on earth. And so the amillennialist is saying, well, no, it, it's, it's language that's meant to communicate sort of the totality of the destruction of what everyone was used to at the time of what everyone was seeing as the center of the world, particularly the Jews and the Christians, the destruction of the temple was like the end of everything that they could have conceived of. And so the Amillennius is looking at this and saying, so so then the reign and rule of Christ, that sort of is a background, a background element of the entire book of Revelation, is happening concurrently, that we're in the reign and rule of Christ now, that he reigns in heaven with his saints. And I think that you see this most clearly in um, Daniel 7-ish, when the Son of Man comes into the throne room of God, he comes before the Ancient of Days, and he is seated before the Ancient of Days. And then we go to the beginning of the book of Revelation. We have basically the same scene playing out where the lamb comes before the, the Ancient of Days and is seated next to him. And we have language throughout the New Testament, right? Stephen looks into heaven and sees the sun standing beside the throne. The book of Hebrews talks about um, how the sun is, was seated at the right hand of the Father. And so being seated in the Bible in terms of rulership is when the king finally takes possession of his of his domain. He sits down to signify that he's done with the conquest of it. So the amillennialist looks at that language in the book of Revelation of the lamb being seated on the throne and being in the presence of the father, all of that stuff, and wants to say, see, this is indicating that this is happening now, that the spiritual reign of Christ is now. And so Christ returns after that spiritual reign, and that spiritual reign is the millennium. So it's not quite accurate to say that all millennialists believe there's no millennium. It's just that the thousand-year period in the in the book of Revelation, like all of the numbers in the book of Revelation, are is a symbolic number to to discuss a sort of a long duration of time. Right, you're in right? it right now. I'm in it right now, um, and How's so the, the post-millennial position to kind of cap it all off. 
the post-millennial position looks at certain language in the New Testament. And I think that the reason that this this is so, I don't want to say controversial, even though it is sometimes, but the reason this can be so contentious at times is because all three of these positions have really good exegetical bases. There's not any one position, the, the pre-mill, ah-mill, and post-mill position that you look at and go, that is a ridiculous abuse of the scripture. Right, Each exactly. one of them has good exegetical grounds. Um, so in some ways, I think we have to treat it similar to the baptism question, right? We have... We have Christians who are good and godly and respect the word of God and want to honor God and take his word seriously, who come to come to differing conclusions based on exegetical and systematic theological arguments. So the post-millennial position looks at language about the gospel going out to the whole world. They look at the, the fact that Satan is bound and cannot deceive the nations any longer. And that's why there's some overlap between the amillennial and postmillennial position. It's because they're wanting to say that some of that stuff that seems to be happening during the millennium, it seems like we're already there. And the main difference then is that once sort of the church has conquered, the church has gained victory over, over the world and the world becomes Christianized basically. Um, they then would say that Christ returns to sort of sit down in this kingdom that he has conquered through his people. And so that's that's the basic position of the, the post-millennial. Now, it's not quite accurate to say that they believe in some sort of like golden age of the church. Um, they would say that there's always going to be evil. There's always going to be wickedness until Christ comes and finishes the job. But by and large, the gospel has gone out and has um, has succeeded. And for all of the strength of their exegetical arguments, I think we kind of instinctively look at that and go, well, are you kidding me? Look around at the world. But if we're being honest, like the gospel moves about more freely in the world now than it ever has in history. For sure. So it's not quite as obvious to me that their their position is sort of manifestly ridiculous. In a lot of ways, um, first century Rome was a much more immoral and terrible place to live than our culture is now. Um, there's a lot of things, just general um, general ethical practices of the way that things are. And that's not even to take into account the fact that we live in a, an era of relative safety and relative security in terms of medicine and technology. Um, even just the freedom of the gospel and the freedom of Christians in most of the world, especially in the Western world, um, that may be coming to an end or may not. But there's a lot of, I mean, the, the post-millennial position has a lot to sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot to encourage. I don't know. It has a lot of, a lot going for it is what I'm trying to say. It's not sure. as readily obvious that it's wrong as it used to be maybe for me. Yeah. I'm glad for your comment about affirming the scriptural underpinnings of these different views. And I, to that effect, like I want to read Dan, uh, that small portion of Daniel 7, which is awesome, because I think just in reading it, there will be places where certainly you can apply it to one or all of those in different ways, but like the, just the essential elements of the passage outside of that. So that's what I want to read. This is Daniel um, 7, starting in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I just love that. I mean, no matter what, how you yeah. feel about the end times, there's a reality about the power and the judgment 
and the righteous nature of God, that, I don't know, it's just awesome. I mean, that yeah. that just holds me spellbound thinking about that. So I, I, what do you think, kind of as we close this out, what do you think it's more acceptable to disagree on, baptism or eschatology? Wow. Um, I mean, what, I what do people in your opinion where... get more fired up about? Baptism for sure. Yeah, me too. Like, like yeah. it's almost like you can disagree. And like, because sometimes in baptism, people will just straight call you out and be like, "Well, if you if you don't, if you're not a Pado Baptist or you're not a Credo Baptist, like you're hardly a Christian, or basically you're a subgenre of yeah. Christianity because you're not taking the word seriously." But with eschatology, either because it's complicated nature or because of the fact that it's not as in vogue and it's more difficult to sort through, I do think people are more willing to agree disagree on that than they are in baptism. Yeah, I think the other thing is baptism has a specific act and a specific command that's tied to it. Sure. So you're either you're either commanded to baptize your infant, and therefore pre- uh, Baptists who don't are sinning, or you're not allowed to baptize infants, and therefore Presbyterians who do are sinning. But at the end of the day, one position is wrong, and the position that's wrong is committing a pretty serious sin. And, you know, unknowingly and with the best intentions, but is still committing a pretty serious sin. Um, eschatology, I'm not sure has anything really like that. I don't think there's anything that ties it to a specific action the same way. I mean, there might be some kind of like, as we said earlier, there's some ethical outflows about how we think about the world and how we you right. know, evangelize and those things. Um, but I don't think those are necessarily tied to a particular action the same way that baptism is. No, it's not tied to like, so the action comes first in baptism and in the sin after in a sense. But even in this, like we were talking about, if you subscribe to a view very strongly and you actually live it out, then you're certainly committing some type of sin and doing so if it's wrong. Yeah. If it's, if it's wrong. So eat, both of them result in sin. Right. It's just always interesting to me how we, we kind of have one, we have different willingness to accept differences here. It's just interesting. Yeah. E- even again, like you said, we're both saying that people across the ages have thought differently about these and for good reason and with wonderful biblical support. So it's just funny how they're very different issues. Yeah. And I think, I think maybe to sort of wrap it up and bring it to some conclusion, I think the other reason that the disagreement is maybe a little bit more collegial and doesn't get as much heat as it does with the baptism debate is um, at the end of the day, these positions all eventually come to the same place, right? Christ comes back. He restores all of his people in in their resurrection, glorified bodies forever. And all of those who are apart from him are raised uh, bodily to judgment. So all three positions are going to affirm that point, that ultimately Christ is going to come back and establish his kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven. All three positions agree on that. The difference is, well, what's the order of events? But the last event, the final culmination of it is Christ bodily reigning and ruling on the new earth and and the new heaven. Um, so there's agreement in the last part of it. So I think maybe we can legitimately say that like, well, we have some disagreements, but we all agree on the, the most important part of this. Um, right. We all get so to the there same are place. Some, you know, there are some positions that are going to deny like a final judgment. And that's, right. those are not Christian positions. Right. We, yeah, so exactly. Annihilationism, conditional immortality is kind of vogue in a lot of circles right now, even in some reform circles, which is just beyond me. But um, those positions, I would say, are outside of what's acceptable for a Christian to believe. They're, they're probably not heresy in the sense that, um, you know, denying the Trinity is heresy, but they're definitely well outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. And they do actually have some some implications for your doctrine of Christ and your doctrine of the Trinity that are, right. are interesting that we don't need to tease out right now. Right. I agree. You, you should definitely define this the other way around. Like, don't go to the, the place 
with the eschatological, eschatological view that you like the best? I would say start with understanding how you, are we, as we talked about, understand sociology, pneumatology, and make sure that's influencing how you understand right. the end times. But there's at least one thing that we can all agree on, and that is that free books are excellent. Free books are excellent. I almost forgot. <laughs> how could Man, you forget I got about free so books? Excited. I got so excited because I'm not getting the free books. Oh, that's true. Because we're giving the free books away. Justin. We are giving some free books away. So let's talk yes. about how this is going to work, why we're doing this. Everybody should turn up this podcast right now to get all these details. Yes. Stop so, what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. Stop right it. now. Stop. All right. Have you stopped? If you haven't stopped, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. All right. So here's the deal. <laughs> um, we, we recognize that it is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And we've got some special... Reformation Month um, stuff coming up for you. But we are super excited because Zondervan is actually sponsoring our Reformation Month activities. And the way that they're doing that is they've provided us with a copy of all of the Five Solas books. So the the Five Solas series that Zondervan published, um, people like Carl Truman, Tom Schreiner, um, Dr. Van Drunen, uh, Matthew Barrett, and I think the last one is... I don't remember, but I will find out well, for next week. Did you say well? But the five solo books by Zondervan, they've given us a copy, and we're going to give away all five copies. So five the way copies. that you the way that you get entered in to do that is you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest, and um, it's one of those sort of application things that everybody loves to hate, where you you do a bunch of different stuff, and each time you do something, you get another entry, and you can enter all five giveaways if you want, but I'm only going to let you win one. So if you have a particular book that you want to win, only enter for that book. If you enter for all five and by some chance you happen to win two of them, I'm going to just pick one. Um, the chances are you're, you've got a one in five chance of winning the one you wanted to win. Um, but they're all great. So unless you already own one, there really is no way to lose at this competition if you get one of the books. So right. go to the website, reformbrotherhood.com slash contest, um, enter. And then what we're going to do is we're going to close the entries um, on the last week of October. The last day to enter will be October 28th. And then we will draw uh, and announce the winners and we'll record on the 29th. And those winners will be announced and released on the episode that launches on Wednesday, November 1st. So keep tuned in for the next month. We've got some cool stuff coming up. We're pretty excited. We've got a couple interviews that we're trying to set up, um, and we're just really stoked because this is this is a once-in-a-lifetime uh, historical event for us that we get to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Um, it's just a it was a watershed moment in history. It's a watershed moment in the spiritual lives of God's people. It's a watershed moment in my life that you know discovering the doctrines of grace and discovering the solas um, was just a game changer for me. And it's also probably a once-in-a-lifetime giveaway for us because we're probably never going to give these books away again. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Zondervan <laughs> so, was very gracious to just give us these books to give away. They, didn't they will. So go so. to the website, reformbrotherhood.com backslash contest, and fill everything out so that you can get registered to get some of this good stuff because it is pretty awesome series, honestly. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, I've read I've read three out of the five books and they're they're phenomenal. I'm working on the other two, but the the Sola Scriptura one is like a massive tome compared to the others. But it's it's worth it. It's just a lot longer. Yeah, I have all these books in front of me, and like, am I excluded from winning these? Like, if I go out and, uh, 
I think so. I think you probably are. <laughs> I appreciate that you actually thought about that or like phone thought about that I think that's probably that some form of some form of nepotism <laughs> or simony maybe. <laughs> one of those one of those things. So come get some free books and come hang out with us especially over the next month. I'm sure there's lots of people doing all kinds of celebratory podcasts, but ours are going to be a little bit different. So you're going to get kind of a a different perspective on things, some different people to hear from. So be sure to continue to check it out and register to win. Awesome. Jesse, other than going to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest and signing up to win these books, how else might someone get a hold of us? Well, somebody can definitely get a hold of us by going to Twitter, reformbrotherhood, and then hashtagging their their tweet which i already forgot what it was called we're calling it bumper sticker eschatology yeah let's go with that yeah so come up with your super slick slogan for i guess we're doing what historic pre-mill and amil and amil and post-mill and post-mill yeah. and you in tweet tweet that reform brohood and we got to read some of those as they yes. come through yeah we will as they as we get them so, so of course you can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com and again, our voicemail is so incredibly lonely. Like, I, I'm sure like Benny Hinn gets like tons of voicemail. So let's not yeah. let him win. Somebody call us. The number is 607-444-2767. Don't let Benny Hinn win. Don't that's, let Benny Hinn win. That's why you need to call. Don't yeah. let Benny win. Don't, <laughs> Don't let Hinn win. And Benny Hinn, if you're listening to this, call and leave us a voicemail. Or if you can do a good impersonation of Benny Hinn, oh, even call better. and leave us a voicemail. If you can heal somebody over voicemail, the number to call is 607-444-2767. Bros. This just went off the rails. Straight we are up. so, so gone. Oh, So take us home, Tony. Any last final words of wisdom? Well, um, I'm sure that I'll have lots of uh, denials of my own lack of clarity for next week. But uh, I think, you know, this is a subject that you really have to take time and study. So there's lots of great research sure. out there. Um, Two Thieves, which is not a formal part of the Society of Reform Podcasters, but they are in my heart. Um, they did an awesome sort of produced uh, eschatology series. So I would strongly encourage you to go check it out. Um, it was it was really good. It took them a long time to get it out, but that's because they wanted to do a good job. Um, right and then um, if you're looking for some good content, Mike Horton's chapters in his systematic theology on eschatology are all very good. Um, and then a book that I found particularly helpful was um, Sam Storm's, um, it's called Kingdom Come. It's a, a book that's arguing for amillennialism. But he does a good job, I think, fairly describing the other positions, including the post-mill and the pre-mill and the uh, dispensational position. So check those out. Um, they're really good uh, resources. And, you know, I just study theology. Just read as much theology yeah. as you can. Right on. I totally want to just jump all over that. So if you are thinking you're looking for like a little supplemental study, maybe something on the side, this is like a great topic, especially if you feel like you have a gap in this, like I do oftentimes, just get after it. Pick up some of those resources. Yep. Listen to Two Thieves. That is a legit cast on eschatology. So at least yep. you can kind of fill in some of the places where you feel like you might be a little weak. It's really helpful to know. And I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, that should just about do it. Until next week, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>